take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 10. 2 Samuel chapter 10, we're steadily making our way through the books of Samuel. This is the 40th sermon in our series in Samuel. That either makes me feel really excited or really tired. I don't know yet. Our 40th sermon in this series, steadily making our way through the life of King David. And today we find another account of the growing strength of David's earthly kingdom. 2 Samuel chapter 10. So, please follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church beginning in verse 1. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at the hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rahab and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with a thousand men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate, and the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of the men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and returned and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadad-Ezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadad-Ezer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before David. And David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadad-Ezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites 
anymore. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to help us to hear His Word in a way that leads to faith and obedience. Let's pray. God, we do confess and acknowledge to You this morning the same truth that the Lord Jesus confessed during His temptation in the wilderness, the same truth that was written in Your Old Testament that Your people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the Scriptures that we have heard this morning, Father, are Your Word. They are part of Your inspired and errant Word given to us for our good. And so we know, Father, that You intend us to benefit from Your Word today and to grow. You intend to give us grace so that we might be nourished and we might live, God, not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so we pray that You would help us now to listen to Your Word and to hear it with ears of faith. We pray, Father, that we would not be like those who hear the Word and only hear it and do not do what it says. We pray that You would give us the grace to be a doer of the Word by faith to the glory of Christ and for the good of His church. Father, please give me mercy now to speak things that are true and accurate and faithful to the Scriptures. And please grant Your church discernment that we all might be built up in the truth until the day that the Lord Jesus returns. And we pray in His name. Amen. I'm sure you've heard the phrase flyover country before. You guys heard that phrase, flyover country? It's a somewhat snarky description for the middle of the country, places like Arkansas that are stuck in between the two coasts. You don't really need to go to those places So the thinking goes, you just fly over them in order to get to the more important spots like L.A. or or D.C. or something. Well, if I can borrow that idea, but without the snark, some people might call 2 Samuel 10 a flyover passage. It's wedged between two better known chapters in David's life. You can see it there in your Bibles. On the one side is chapter 9 which as we saw last week, described David's kindness to Mephibosheth, the crippled son of Jonathan. Then on the other side is chapter 11, the account of David and Bathsheba, also well known, but not necessarily encouraging. And here in the middle, stuck, so to speak, between those two coasts, is chapter 10, where we find David once again fighting against his enemies. Now, if you were reading along through 2 Samuel, it would be understandable if you just wanted to fly over this chapter. I mean, it sounds familiar, first of all, and it doesn't jump off the page at you the way that chapters 9 or 11 do. In fact, one noted Old Testament scholar said this about 2 Samuel 10. Somebody actually put this statement in print. Quote, chapter 10 by itself has no great theological significance for us. Close quote. Oh. You see, it seems like little more than a flyover passage. It's just a flyover text. Just a place we need to get through before we can get to the more significant stuff. Well, as residents of flyover country ourselves, perhaps we of all people should expect to find something worthwhile in this so-called flyover passage. Perhaps we of all people should know that there really aren't any flyover passages in the Bible. 
Now, to be sure, some passages do play a more pivotal role in redemptive history than others, and I'm not going to try to convince you that 2 Samuel 10 is the most important chapter in the Bible. But it is in the Bible. It is in the Bible. And therefore, it's part of God's provision for us to live and to grow in godliness. It may not be heartwarming like the story of Mephibosheth, And it may not be notorious like David and Bathsheba, but 2 Samuel 10 is profitable to us. For it's part of God's inspired Word. And therefore, friends, it deserves our attention. So if you'll look at the chapter with me, you'll notice that it divides rather neatly into three parts, with each part focusing on a different character. You you can see it there in in your Bible. A A good rule of thumb in studying God's Word is the first thing you should do is look for the divisions in the chapter. Look for the structure in the passage. You can see it in your copy of God's Word. Look with me. Verses 1-5 to describe the actions of Hanun, king of the Ammonites. Verses 6-14 to recount what Joab did in the battle against an Ammonite and Syrian alliance. And then verses 15-18 to describe David's defeat of this Syrian confederation. You see the different characters signal to you where the new sections start. First it's Hanun, then it's Joab, then it's David. It's a rather straightforward breakdown. Three sections focused on three different guys. And it's that structure that should then give us the bearings for our study this morning. You can think of 2 Samuel 10 as presenting three portraits of different characters who interact with God's people. Three portraits that both warn us and admonish us and encourage us how we should respond to the kingdom of God. The first portrait comes there in verses 1-5 to where we see the fool who rejects covenant kindness. The fool who rejects covenant kindness. While David's kingdom is thriving, a neighboring kingdom is experiencing some turmoil. Verse 1 describes how Nahash king of the Ammonites, died, and his son, Hanun, reigned in his place. You may remember Nahash from earlier in our story. He was the guy who took over the city of Jabesh-Gilead and then threatened to gouge out everyone's right eye if they didn't submit to him. 1 Samuel 11, Nahash is not a good dude. That made Nahash an enemy of Saul, but David apparently changed the relationship with this man. It seems that David and Nahash had a treaty that ensured good relations between the two kingdoms. And this was a wise move on Nahash's part. As we've seen over the last several chapters, David is clearly the power in the region. No one is able to stand up to David. So it would have been good foreign policy for Nahash the Ammonite to make a treaty with David. And in verse 2, David decides to extend that treaty to Nahash's son, Hanun. Understand, friends, this is a gracious offer from King David. He doesn't have to do this for Hanun. There's nothing the Ammonite king can add to the mighty David, but David extends the offer anyway. Hanun's father was loyal to David, and in return, David promises loyalty to Hanun the son. You see, it's gracious. It's gracious. And it comes entirely at King David's initiative. There's nothing Hanun could have done to deserve it or earn it. Now, 
If that sounds a bit like what we saw last week with Mephibosheth, then good, because that's what we're supposed to see here at this point. Our English translation obscures this a little bit, but verse 2 includes the same idea that chapter 9 expressed so beautifully. Look at verse 2 and notice where it says uh, that David, David proclaimed that he would deal loyally with Hanun. That phrase, deal loyally, includes the same word that chapter 9 translated as kindness. In fact, it would probably be better to carry that word kindness into our translation in verse 2. So it would sound something like this. And David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash. You see, it's the same word because David is driven by the same desire to keep covenant with those around him. David is a covenant-keeping king. Just as David extended kindness to Mephibosheth, so also David extends kindness to Hanun. But that's where the similarities end and the differences become very apparent. Notice what happens in verse 3. Unlike Mephibosheth, who received David's kindness with humility, Hanun rejects it. The Ammonite princes convince their king that David's offer is a ruse. It's, It's a scheme to spy out the land and then to take it over. Never mind the fact that David was faithful all of those years to Nahash. Never mind that David hasn't crushed the Ammonites already, which he could probably do pretty easily. No, all of that past faithfulness is tossed by the wayside. And the Ammonite princes convince Hanun that David's offer is a ploy. It's a ruse. It's a game. It's a scheme. He doesn't care about you. He wants your land. So, in verse 4, Hanun repays David's kindness with an insult. He shaves off half the beard on each of David's messengers. He does this vertically probably so that half their face is clean shaven and half their face is not. I was going to see if one of the bearded men in our church would agree to do this as an illustration. I didn't think they would. Half the beard on one side shaved off so that you look ridiculous. And then he cut off their garments at the waist so that they're shamefully exposed. The point is this is how you would treat prisoners of war. It's not how you treated your friends. It's how you treated prisoners of war. You would publicly humiliate them as a show of your strength and their weakness. And that's how Hanun responds to David's kindness. He despises it. He rejects it. He repays it with an insult. And as we're going to see later on, friends, this is utterly foolish. This is utterly foolish. It actually ends up being quite ironic when you think about it. Hanun rejected David because he wanted to protect his own kingdom. But by rejecting David, Hanun ends up losing the very thing he sought to protect. He loses his own kingdom at the end of chapter 12. It's such a different response from what we saw with Mephibosheth, isn't it? One offer of kindness was received with humility and it brought blessing. But here in chapter 10, David's kindness is rejected and it will lead to destruction. So that's the first portrait. Hanun the fool who rejects kindness. But still there's a question hanging out there. What does this Ammonite king have to say to us today? What does Hanun have to say to us? The answer might not be immediately clear since time and culture have marched on since 2 Samuel 10. 
But this is where it helps to remember that each individual passage in the Bible is part of a larger storyline. Here's tip number two for studying the Bible. Tip number one was figure out the structure. Tip number two is compare it to the rest of the Bible. The Bible is composed of 66 individual books, but those books proclaim one grand message. It's one story. So by drawing on the rest of the storyline, we can take the passages that are less than clear and still apply them to our lives. Specifically here, it helps to read 2 Samuel 10 in light of Psalm 2. It helps to read 2 Samuel 10 in light of Psalm 2. In fact, I take chapter 10 to be an illustration of the theology that Psalm 2 teaches. Psalm 2 is the textbook. 2 Samuel 10 is the movie. It shows you the theology. The psalm interprets the story. Now, you might remember that Psalm 2 is a celebration of God's sovereignty over the nations of the earth. The Almighty God has raised up His Anointed One, His King, and through His Anointed One, God reigns over everyone, everywhere. Even when the nations rage against God, the Almighty simply sits in heaven and laughs at them. Now, why would God laugh when people rage against Him? Because God's King, whom the psalm calls God's Son, God's King reigns from an unshakable throne. He's set on Zion, God's holy hill. Nothing can ever Take him off. It's the end of the psalm, though, in particular, that helps us with our passage. As the psalm draws to a close, the psalmist exhorts the kings of the earth. This is where we find the help we need. Listen to what he says. This is the end of Psalm 2. Now, therefore, O kings, what is Hanun? He's a king. Therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest He be angry with you, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Now, here comes the key line for us. The last line of the psalm. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. That is, in God's King. Blessed are all who take refuge in God's King. But that's precisely what Hanun did not do. He did not take refuge in God's King. What did this Ammonite do? He rejected God's king. And therefore, Hanun will experience God's wrath. You see, friends, Hanun the Ammonite is a picture of the reality that confronts humanity each and every day. If you take refuge in God's king by faith, then God in His grace promises blessing. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. But if you reject God's King, then all that is left for you to experience is divine wrath. That's the message of Hanun's life. It is better to bow the knee in submission to God than it is to be broken under His wrath for your rebellion. Let me say it again. This is Hanun's message to you and to me. It is better to bow the knee in submission to God than it is to be broken under His wrath for your rebellion. Friends, the Bible declares that Jesus Christ is God's King. The King that God has established. 
That's where the storyline of the Bible takes us. From King David and Hanun in 2 Samuel 10, all the way to the Lord Jesus and His cross in the Gospels of the New Testament. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Anointed One of God. And through His death and resurrection, the good news of salvation is now proclaimed over all the earth. This salvation is not something we deserved, and it's not something we could ever have earned. We are all rebels against God, deserving only His wrath because of our sin. And yet God, the God of the Bible, is gracious beyond measure. And He's established His Son. He has given His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to atone for sin and to satisfy the wrath that we deserved. And now, that promised blessing in Psalm 2, blessed are all who take refuge in Him, that promised blessing comes to those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who trust in Christ, there is salvation and forgiveness and communion with God through His Son. That's unfathomable good news! But there's the other side, isn't there? Those who reject Christ have only the fearful expectation of wrath and punishment. If you do not know the Lord Jesus this morning, then God's Word is urging you to see the foolishness of rejecting God's King. He's given you this story in 2 Samuel 10 so you can see played out in a real person's life what happens when you reject God's provision. You'll be destroyed. If you don't know Christ today, then God's Word is urging you to see the foolishness of rejecting God's King. Learn from Hanun the Ammonite. By trying to protect his own kingdom, what happened to him? He ended up losing everything. The same is true for those who reject the Gospel. You may think that you're not a Christian because you want to hold on to your life and you want to hold on to your own autonomy and your own authority, but in the end, by rejecting the Gospel, you'll lose all of those things. The Gospel, however, promises life to those who lay down their lives in submission to Christ. If you don't know the Lord Jesus today, even right now, Christ's kindness is on display to you as you're hearing the good news from the Scriptures. Don't take my word for it. Listen to God's Word, friend. Listen to God's Word. Don't follow in the footsteps of this foolish man who rejected God's King and don't overlook the kindness of God right now to show you this good news. Don't follow in Hanun's foolish footsteps. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. So what does Hanun the Ammonite have to say to people in 2018? Well, he has a lot to say, actually. He has a lot to say. For his foolishness in rejecting the king's kindness urges all of us to embrace the kindness of God proclaimed in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the first portrait. If we keep going in the chapter, we find the second portrait in verses 6-14. to The troublemaker who proclaims the truth. The troublemaker who proclaims the truth. Hanun may be a fool, but he's not going to sit idly by and wait for David to strike. He knows he's in trouble, as verse 6 makes so clear. So Hanun brings in some hired guns, the Syrians and their friends. The numbers in verse 6 are staggering. 
Altogether, Hanun hires 33,000 mercenary soldiers. From 1 Chronicles, we learn that this cost Hanun about 38 tons in silver. I think that's a lot. 38 tons of silver. It's a massive cost for an impressive force. But not only is this an impressive force, the two armies also have the strategic advantage. Notice verse 9. Joab, David's commander, sees that the battle is set against him both in the front and in the back. In other words, David's army is trapped. Right? They're trapped in a, in a classic pincer formation. They're facing a battle on two fronts. The Ammonites on one side guarding the capital and the Syrians on the other side out in the open country. If Joab is not careful, then his army will simply be squashed as the two sides close in on him. Now, if you remember from earlier in the book, then you will know that Joab is a ruthless, daring fellow. Remember in chapter 3 how he deceived Abner? Saul's commander, and then he murdered him in cold blood? It's not unusual for Joab to find himself in trouble, but typically Joab is the one causing the trouble. So how will Joab respond? Well, notice verses 10 and 11. He proposes a risky plan. He splits his army between himself and his brother, Abishai. Joab will take the best men and fight the Syrians because they're the strongest, while Abishai will take the rest of the men and fight the Ammonites because they're the weakest. If one side gets into trouble, then the other side will help, will help the other. It's a bold, risky strategy. But it's one you might expect from a guy like Joab. Okay, so up to this point, everything in the chapter is proceeding as we would expect it to go. We've read about battles before in 2 Samuel, and they're typically narrated like this. They describe the situation, and then they describe the fighting. So far, all of this is according to script. Right? It's just all normal. But then we get to verse 12, and we find something unexpected, something unusual. Joab gives a speech before the battle begins, and it's surprisingly full of God-honoring truth. Verse 12 is really good theology. But Joab is a really ruthless dude. (laughs) I mean, one commentator I read called Joab a rascal. That's a good southern word, a rascal. And I think that's a good description. He's a rascal. He's a troublemaker. In fact, Joab is such a troublemaker that when David is dying and Solomon is coming to the throne, one of the first things David tells Solomon to do is to kill Joab. He says, don't let his gray head go down to the grave unharmed. You kill him. And Solomon does. So Joab is a dangerous guy. He's too much of a loose cannon to be trusted. All of that to say, when we find Joab preaching in verse 12... It's a bit surprising. And and understand, friends, Joab's speech is full to the brim with truth. I mean, it is full. Verse 12 is unexpected, but it's also the heart of the chapter. It's the hinge of the chapter. And therefore, this is the point where we need to slow down and think for a minute. This is the middle section. This is the high point. So let's just look for a minute at what Joab the troublemaker, Joab the rascal, proclaims. He's got three points to his sermon. So maybe he was a Baptist. Okay, Three points to Joab's sermon. He calls, first of all, for God-centered confidence. God-centered confidence. Notice the opening of verse 12. He says, be of good courage. You could call this phrase the battle cry of Israel. 
It's actually the same thing that both Moses and Joshua said to Israel when they were preparing to enter the promised land. Do you remember? Be strong and courageous. It's the same phrase. Be of good courage. So by using this historic battle cry, Joab reminds his men of the central truth of Israel's history, that God fights for His people. That's what he's saying when he says, be of good courage. He's saying, remember that God fights for you. God fights for His people. He fought for Israel when they came up out of Egypt. He fought for Israel when they entered the land. And He's going to fight for you at this moment. That's what Joab is saying. That's his point. This is not a call to self-centered confidence, but to God-centered confidence. By echoing Joshua, right? Joab is telling them to look to God. He points his men to the Lord who fights for his people. But Joab the rascal is not finished. He also calls for God-centered motives. Notice the next phrase in verse 12. It's God-centered confidence, now God-centered motives. Let us be courageous. Why? For our people and for the cities of our God. Friends, that's a rather remarkable statement. Joab is not driven by self-preservation and he's not hungry for self-exaltation. No, Joab calls his men to sow courage for the good of others and for the glory of God. Do you see it there in the verse? They should fight so that Israel is made safe. Do it for our people. And they should fight for the glory of God. These are the cities of God. This is where His name is known. So the good of others and the glory of God. Friends, those are the motives that should always animate the people of God. This is why the law can be summed up in just two commandments. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And that central motivation... That central motivation of all the Old Testament shows up in Joab's speech. These are God-centered motives. The end of verse 12 brings it all together. Joab calls for God-centered trust. God-centered trust. Notice the last phrase in verse 12. And may the Lord do what seems good to Him. Now, don't read that as resignation. As though Joab is just throwing up his hands because he has no hope. Don't read it as resignation. Instead, read it as confidence in God. It's confident dependence on the Lord. They've made their plans. They've got a strategy. But at the end, Joab recognizes the battle is in the Lord's hands. May God do what seems good to him. So Joab may be a rascal, but he knows enough to proclaim that their trust should be in the Lord. God-centered confidence. God-centered motives. And God-centered trust. It is a stirring speech from an unexpected source. And before we rush to all of the hypothetical questions about how Joab could say these things and what this may mean about the state of Joab's soul, before we rush to all of those hypotheticals, perhaps we should just take the humble first step of actually listening to what he says. I mean, really, it's no different to hear Joab the rascal proclaim God's truth than it would be to hear you or me. I'm a troublemaker. Maybe not to the degree that Abner is. I mean, that Joab is. So before we rush to all the hypotheticals, perhaps we should just take the humble first step of just listening to what Joab has to say. In fact, I don't have any way to prove this, but I wonder if this is part of the reason why the Holy Spirit inspired and recorded this particular speech because it's so unexpected, it gets your attention and you listen to it. 
I mean, just think about it for a minute, friends. If this were David talking in verse 12, we would read it and go, yeah, that sounds about right. That's David. Keep going. But because it's Joab, you go, wait a second, what is he saying? And you listen. You take notice. And perhaps maybe you listen even a little bit more closely. And when we do that, when we do slow down long enough to actually listen to this rascal, what we find is a helpful guide for enduring uncertain and troubling situations. It's actually very practical, friends. Verse 12. It's a helpful guide for enduring uncertain and troubling situations. Joab is facing an uncertain situation. His army is at a disadvantage. He's hemmed in on both sides. So what does he do? What does Joab do? He makes a plan. He recalls what God has done. And he rests in God's sovereign care. If you, if you boil it all down, that's what he's doing. That's what his portrait is saying to us. It's a thumbnail sketch for dealing with trouble. Make a plan. Recall what God has done. And rest in God's sovereign care. And it's that last element that is the key. Rest in God's sovereign care. When we have done all that we can do, when all of our plans are made, and we've stirred up as much God-centered courage as we can, where do we go? Where do we rest? In the sovereign care of God. I know, I know that it's strange to hear it from Joab, but don't miss it, brothers and sisters. In every situation, our ultimate hope is that God will always do what is right and good. That His wisdom is never exhausted. And that whatever He does do for His people is always best. Listen, I know there are folks in our church who are facing troubling and uncertain situations. Greg and I were praying about this in the janitor's closet before the service because that's where we pray, in the janitor's closet. I know there are troubling and uncertain situations facing a number of, of folks in our church. Some of those situations may be, may be known. Some of you may not have made them known yet. Some of them may involve your family or your children, and some may involve your health or the health of a loved one. Some may involve your future or your work, and some may simply be emotional trouble that you can't seem to shake. There are a host of situations swirling around today more than you could possibly imagine. And I wish that I could tell you precisely what the path of wisdom would look like for whatever it is you're facing. I wish that you and I could go grab coffee and I could give you all the steps, one, two, three, to fix your situation. But I can't do that. I don't know every specific thing you should do to endure all of your trouble. I can't tell you every specific step. But what I can give you is the truth of verse 12. That God will do what is right and good and best. It may not be easy. And it most assuredly will not happen fast. But whatever the Lord does, it will be good and wise and best. And therefore, friends, when you've made all your plans and laid all your strategy and done all of your Bible study, you can end by praying, may the Lord do what seems good to Him. And perhaps at the end of the day, that's what God is after in all of this stuff anyway. Maybe that's what the Lord intends 
all of life's troubles to produce in His children. Not a perfect set of steps on how to solve everything, but a deepened sense of trust in His goodness and in His care. I'm wary of very neat prescriptions on what you should do. I'm less wary of people saying, may God do what seems best to Him. So, if all you can do today is pray verse 12, may the Lord do what seems good to Him. If that's all you can pray, then praise God for that grace. For it's not a small thing to entrust yourself to a faithful God who always does what is good. Always. Doesn't make it easy. It's not going to happen fast. But it's always good and right and wise and best. So is Joab a troublemaker and a rascal? Yes, probably so. But for the moment at least, he's preaching. He's proclaiming truth, and we would be well served to listen to him. That's the second portrait. That brings us to the end of the chapter, verses 15 to 18. And we'll conclude here with the final portrait, the king who reigns in power. We've seen the fool and the troublemaker. Now we see the king who reigns in power. Joab's strategy worked, by the way, as you can see in verses 13 and 14. But the Syrians are kind of hard-headed like the Philistines. They don't know when to quit. So they call for reinforcements. And in verse 16, they want to have another go at Israel. But we already know how this is going to end, don't we? We saw this in chapter 8, where David defeated all of his enemies, including the Syrians. And the same holds true here. Notice verse 18. And the Syrians fled before Israel. There's not even a description of the battle. They just run away. They're no match for David. And verse 19 gives the final verdict. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadad-Ezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. And with that, the chapter comes full circle. We began with Hanun the Ammonite foolishly rejecting David. And now we end with the Ammonites on their own with no protection against David. And for the next two chapters, they're going to be the background against which we see David's life. So the chapter ends where it started. And what about David at this point? What do we see from David as chapter 10 concludes? Well, we see a covenant-keeping king. He's a covenant-keeping king who extends kindness to those both inside and outside his realm. And he's a powerful king who is able to protect God's people and defeat God's enemies. Covenant-keeping king, powerful king. Again, we think of Psalm 2 that we mentioned earlier. The nations may rage against God. The Syrians may rage against God. But the Lord has set His king on Zion's holy hill. David reigns secure. And this, friends is the peak of His kingdom power. This is the apex, the pinnacle. But as we'll see over the next several chapters, for all of His significance, David is still a sinful human being. And for all of its power, His kingdom is only a shadow of a greater kingdom that is to come. A kingdom that will be truly unshaken, ruled by a king whose power knows no end. The Lord Jesus. Friends, I'm glad we didn't fly over this chapter. We would have missed the exhortation not to reject covenant kindness. We would have missed the encouragement that God always does what is good, even when the odds are against us. 
And we would have missed the shadow of Christ's powerful, unshakable kingdom. I'm glad we didn't fly over this text. May God the Father strengthen us by His Spirit to hold fast by faith to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray.